The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I am delighted to introduce two of my brilliant colleagues, many of you who may already know both of them because they've both been with the firm for at least a decade, if not two decades plus each. Uh, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, who's been with me, I think, 22 years at this point. Um, brilliant, creative, smart lawyer, and I know many of you have done consultations with him. And Chris Drynan, a senior attorney with the firm, who, again, has a wealth of knowledge in a variety of different areas. Our topic today, as you all know, is visas and travel in the current climate. And so in today's session, we plan to cover topics relating, relating to travel, uh, applying for visas at U.S. consular posts, CBP issues, uh, in light of what's going on in the past year since March of 2020 with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the overall political climate as well. Uh, some of the topics that we will cover today relate to rules and restrictions impl impl implemented in the, during the last administration while others are based on issues in, in which we have heard during our consultations and otherwise um, which have been encountered by individuals during their travels. And many of your employees, by the way, I'm sure, have come to you and said issues about their visas being canceled and being sent back, some with expedited removal, some with three-year, five-year bars, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, the first topic that we are going to discuss today is what's referred to as interview waiver eligibility or Dropbox method, which of course is such a wonderful, wonderful option and blessing in this COVID-19 where you want to avoid seeing people face to face. So as you, most of you are aware, in most circumstances, anyone who is applying for a non-immigrant visa is required by law to apply in person at a U.S. consular post or embassy abroad and then will be interviewed by the U.S. consular officer. In the context, however, of applying to renew a visa, that interview requirement is allowed to be waived under what's referred to as what we just said, the Interview Waiver Program, or IWP. And this program is also referred to as the Dropbox option because you can just make your visa renewal process so much easier and more convenient by dropping it in a box like a FedEx or overnight career service for it to be, uh, you know, get on its merry way. So with that, I'm going to invite Aaron to discuss the eligibility criteria for the Dropbox method of visas. Aaron? Yes. So hello, everybody. So um, as she was saying, in most cases, when you're doing a non-immigrant visa, especially the first visa, you've got to show up to the consulate in person. But for the Dropbox or the IWP, I'm going to refer to it as the Dropbox because most of my clients refer to it as the Dropbox to me. Um, for those, there's a, a much more 
uh, relaxed, the, the interview is waived, and you have the ability to use the Dropbox to um, to provide your documents and information, and then to pick up your um, your passport and your visa at a um, at a more convenient time and way. Uh, so to qualify for the Dropbox, uh, the applicant typically has to meet all of these following requirements. First of all, they have to be applying for the same type of visa that they were that they were previously issued. Uh, the second requirement is the person must apply at a consular post located in the country of the applicant's usual residence. Uh, the applicant must not have been previously refused a visa unless such a refusal was overcome or a waiver of ineligibility was obtained. Uh, and also, if the applicant is applying for an F1 or an M1 vocational visa renewal, the student must either be continuing to participate in the same major course of study uh, even if it's at a different institution, or the person must be attending the same institution, the same school, even if it's a different major course of study. So it's a flip-flop either way, but that's something that's required. Also, the prior visa in the same class must still be valid or have, must have expired within the last 12 months, but the government, because of COVID, has actually extended that period uh, to 48 months uh, and the policy of allowing somebody with an expired visa to use it uh, up to 48 months, that policy is in effect right now until December 31st of 2021. We'll have to see if they extend it either for, even further because we do know they're very behind on appointments. And so we'll just have to observe and see if they're going to give themselves a break to allow them to catch up. Uh, the change uh, is, the, and like we say, the change is, is actually there to help them process other non-immigrant visas and to limit the number of times that people have to appear in front of the council. Uh, did we want Chris to jump into some of the other issues about eligibility requirements which vary by consular posts, or did you want to add something else? I'm sorry, Aaron. Oh, no, please, Chris is welcome to jump in. Uh, thank you, Sheila. Um, and one thing to remember about this about this process is the eligibility uh, requirements for using the Dropbox do vary from consulate to consulate, um, and this is something that's normally posted on the on the consulate's websites. Um, each 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 U.S. consulate typically has their own website, and they'll have uh, they will discuss their own individual local requirements. For example, in India, um, at the consulates in India, a prior visa refusal only prevents you from using the Dropbox if the refusal occurred after the applicant's most recent visa was issued. Um, likewise, if you're applying in China, they do not allow L1 applicants to use the Dropbox. Um, and a lot of consular posts also, you'll find, will not waive an interview if the applicant's prior visa was issued before they turned 14 years of age. And that's a, that's a pretty standard requirement. Got it. Thank you so much, Chris. And there are, of course, other exceptions to the interview requirement, um, you know, other than what Aaron and Chris just discussed, um, plus the huge benefit of extending it from 12 months to then 24 months and now 48 months to avoid it. There are other categories of visa applicants who, are, who may not be required, but could be required to attend the in-person interview. So a visa applicant that Chris just mentioned, for example, under the age of 14 years or a person who is older than 79 years of age generally could be exempt from the interview requirement. Again, in some cases, we've seen them a lot of it, but especially because of security concerns in the last few years, it's been 
required even for pe- children and adults, elderly people, to be asked sometimes to attend the interviews in person. The interview requirement may also be waived for a person who is applying for what's called a diplomatic NATO or international organization visa. The other interview waiver, remember, interview waiver is ultimately discretionary. Even if the applicant meets the basic interview waiver criteria, the particular U.S. consular post abroad still may require the interview. The waiver of the interview remains completely a discretionary matter, as I just pointed out. And again, simply meeting the eligibility requirements does not guarantee that that particular consular post will agree to issue the visa without the person attending in in person for the interview. Therefore, as a visa applicant, you, your employees, your family members should always be prepared to personally attend a visa interview. Next, I'm going to invite Aaron to speak a little bit about what's going on with the presidential proclamations. We know that there have been updates as of last week. So, Aaron, the floor is yours, and now you may need to unmute your button. Well, everybody should strap in. The roller coaster ride is about to begin. Um, Mm -hmm. So these proclamations have been going up and down and closed and open and courted and not courted, so to speak, for a while. Um, So let's see if we can move through them. So there were two presidential proclamations which were issued by the Trump administration, which basically restricted the issuance of many of the immigrant and non-immigrant visas at the U.S. embassies, uh, and they allegedly because of high unemployment rate in the United States. So this was, you would imagine that it would be to restrict travel for COVID or something, but this was because of high unemployment rates in the United States. So they issued these two proclamations. One was the proclamation uh, 10014 and 10052. Um, and these impacted, um, a, they impacted people that were coming on family base. They also in, impacted non-immigrant uh, visa classifications, which could include HLJ, for example. On February 24th of 2021, uh, President Biden, the new administration, revoked the ban on immigrant visas uh, issuance enacted by the Trump administration. So the ban was basically there from sometime in July all the way uh, up till February 24th of 2021. And we saw because of the ban on the family based on the immigrant side, how it impacted the visa numbers on the employment side, and how because even after October 1, we have October, November, December, January, February, five additional months when the ban was still in play, how it may also impact the visa numbers in October of this year, of the year coming up for 2021, 2022. So we have to wait and see how all of that's impacted. Uh, the, the, the proclamation 10052, which was one of the Trump proclamations, again, previously mentioned, which was suspending the entry of non-immigrant L's, H's, and J's, uh, that was allowed to expire naturally on March 31st of 2021. So the department, and for those people that were impacted by that proclamation, the Department of State has provided instructions to visa applicants um, on how to go forward to be able to um, to um, to apply and what to do, and they did that pursuant to an additional two proclamations, uh, and that um, and those excuse me for people that were impacted by those proclamations, and you can find that on the government's website at travel.state.gov. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Aaron. 
for explaining where we are and what's going on and the latest processes. They're now inviting people to apply for the visas if their certain conditions are satisfied, etc. And we'll maybe get to it towards the end again. So, Chris, I'm going to invite you to speak a little bit about the COVID-19 geographic travel restrictions under those presidential proclamations. Um, both, I think they were started under Trump, but now even President Biden has uh, sort of issued a continuing the suspension for certain countries. That's right, Please, Sheila. There are some, yeah, there are some additional proclamations that are more directly related to to co- high areas with high incidence of COVID and, and particularly areas that have uh, some of the more troublesome COVID variants that we've been hearing of. On January 25th, President Biden, in other words, the current administration, uh, signed a presidential proclamation that continued an existing suspension of, of travel um, for travelers from the Schengen area in Europe, uh, from the United Kingdom, from Ireland, from Brazil, and also expanded restrictions to include people traveling from South Africa, where, where one of those particularly troublesome variants has, has emerged. Um, and there are some, some exemptions from here. U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, green card holders, are not subject to these, these limitations, um, as well as spouses and minor children of those people. And there are some other limited exceptions for air and, and marine crews who are traveling to the U.S. on certain visas. Um, there are also some uh, previous uh, geographic restrictions that are still in force since January of 2020, so for, for more than, significantly more than a year now, um, there has been a restriction on entry uh, from China and including the, the territories of uh, Hong Kong and Macau within 14 days, of, essentially within 14 days of entering the U.S. If you've been in either any of those areas in the prior 14 days, you would not be admitted to the U.S. Um, and also there is a uh, restriction from February of 2020 uh, restricting entry into the U.S. of people who were physically present in Iran within the 14 days preceding entry into the U.S. And that one is, is also still in force. So all of these people um, are, have restrictions on entry based on their travel in, in certain areas that have these high, high COVID incidents. Um, and how long are those, those are going to remain? We don't really know at this point. It's going to depend on, on how the pandemic progresses and hopefully um, the vaccinations that are they're starting to become more, more available will we'll, we'll start to limit those and we'll see those go away at some point. We just don't know when. Good point. Thank you so much, Chris. Yes. So I guess if anybody's planning travel to any of those countries that have these additional restrictions and some other countries actually have restrictions when you enter that particular country, uh, including from the United States. So you need to be very careful any international travel to the United States or even from the United States to other parts of the world. And although that's not U.S. immigration, it's certainly something that you, your employees, your family members, um, need to be very concerned about. The other uh, topic that I'm going to briefly touch upon, of course, is the importance and the requirements that many airlines are uh, imposing um, uh, in, based on recommendation of the CDC, uh, which has been since January 26th, um, you know, back in 2020, where they basically require all passengers entering the United States, including U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, to present a negative COVID-19 test taken within three calendar days of departure or prove that you have recovered from the virus within the last 90 days. They are talking about maybe making a change because now approximately 20% of the population 
is uh, either had one dose or two doses of some of the vaccines. So they're t talking about maybe adding to this require uh, this sort of waiver, if you will, if somebody can show proof of having gotten both of the vaccinations and the required time has passed, et cetera. Uh, but that has not been confirmed yet. So don't just go on that basis. You still need to show proof of this and take the test, et cetera. And airlines have been instructed to confirm the negative test results or proof of recovery for all passengers who are more than two years of age, um, two years or older prior to them being allowed to board any aircraft. And also airlines must deny boarding of passengers who do not provide documentation of a negative test or recovery from COVID-19. Again, the CDC is still warning against non-essential travel at this time, but just based on this past weekend, we saw how because of Easter and Good Friday and the holidays, et cetera, so many people, literally, I think there was an average of 1.5 million people traveling each day, uh, which is one of the highest since the start of the pandemic. So clearly people are getting frustrated and want to do stuff and want to travel and see places, but the risks continue to exist and CDC is certainly not recommending it. And as we heard from Chris and Aaron and me, there are certainly each country has its own rules. So next, let's go to the CBP inspection of foreign nationals' electronic devices. This is one of the hottest, hottest issues where, and by the way, it's not just foreign nationals, just to be clear, which says inspection of foreign nationals, electronic, because most people tend to be foreign nationals, but even if you're a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, um, you can still, your, your laptop, your ID, your iPad, all of those can be examined but it's even stricter and more, and Supreme Court has given even greater powers to foreign nationals. So, Aaron, I'm going to have you, because you deal with a lot of CBP issues, jump into this very hot topic. Before I jump into, the, um, into this topic, which, by the way, is one that's near and dear to my heart, I just want to touch base on something Chris had said uh, with the presidential proclamation and also with the airlines and the CDC guidance uh, not allowing people to come into the country from various places if they had 14 days preceding entry into the U.S. We've had people and we've communicated with people who have called us in this situation, and basically what it means is that if you leave this particular area, for example, U.K., Ireland, Brazil, uh, you leave one of the areas uh, that have these 14-day limitations, and then you go ahead and you go to a country that doesn't have the 14-day limitation, that at the end of the 14 days, they will board you. I just want to bring that home just to draw that conclusion for people because some people are thinking, oh, I can't go anywhere, but it just means that your travel has just become a two-step as opposed to a one-step. Um, and so I wanted to emphasize that. Um, That's and an excellent point. So just to make that clear, you're saying that if they go 14 days somewhere else and do the same quarantine or cooling off period in another country where they may have some work, let's say from the United Kingdom, which is very common, they would then go two weeks to another country which doesn't have that restriction, do the quarantine there, and then from there they can come straight to the U.S. and not again be stuck for two more weeks. Correct. And then do the CDC requirement, the airline requirement of doing the COVID test and then get on the plane and they should be able to come in. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Anna. 
And then the other thing I was saying was Sheila was mentioning about CBP inspections and electronic devices. So this has not been something that is new. This has been something that's been around for quite a while at this point in time. Um, and what it essentially is is that the U.S. has the right to control the borders, and if somebody presents at the border with a suitcase, for example, so you have the right to search the suitcase. So the CBP takes the position that if you present with an electronic device, that they have the right to search the electronic device. And a lot of times we're seeing, especially with people in the IT industry, that they'll search out people's resumes, they'll look at people, for example, where there'll be discrepancies in work history, a discrepancy perhaps somebody put in there to help them land a job with a client, but not necessarily something that impacts their H1. In other words, they still have the qualifying degree. And they'll use the resumes to drill into the person to determine whether or not there was um, fraud or whether there was a misrepresentation of a material fact or whether there's a basis to say that the H-1B was obtained with an omission on the DS-160 at the consulate and various other methods to make as a basis for, for either to instruct the individual or advise the individual to withdraw their admission or to go through an absolute um, removal of the person, subjecting them to a five-year bar in many cases. Uh, it's kind of a scary thing when you think about it. And they do have these, uh, they do have the, 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 the officers do have the discretion, um, and, they have a, the, and they have not just a little discretion, but a tremendous amount of discretion to grant or refuse admission to the U.S. based on what their, their findings are, as they're the people that are what we call boots on the ground, the people in the trenches. So their hands-on decisions do seem to make a, uh, a very significant impact in this type of situation. Um, the one other point, um, so, you know, okay, so, and by the way, when they do this, they're not just looking for your resumes. They can search everything. They can go through your emails, your texts, your social media, your saved documents. In one situation, we had an individual where they actually asked the person for their passwords, though they're not supposed to do this, and they actually asked them for their passwords, and they actually went into their bank statements, their their ADP, went into their, uh, their, um, their uh, uh, what do you call, their pay statements and various other things really digging deep to look for various things um, I know that there's I'm going to pass off soon in a second for uh, for about the denials of admission and the fraud and so on and so forth which is very interesting so, um, the the upshot of these of these searches of cell phones and laptops is frequently um, people getting denied admission to the United States based on on fraud or misrepresentation or perceived fraud or misrepresentation. Um, now, some ports have become very notorious for this. I'm not going to name the ports, um, but there are there are a handful of ports that do this that do this type of thing quite routinely, and they're very they're it, 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 with all due respect they're they're very good at this. Um, they've gotten very they, they've they've honed their methods very well to 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 find inconsistencies or or fraud and and turn them into a reason for to deny people admission. Um, for example, a lot of ports will uh, make a big deal of examining the resumes that H-1B workers have submitted to their employers or to their clients, uh, looking for exaggerated or inaccurate experience or other information on the resume that may be, may be seen as inconsistent with their uh, approved H-1B or their immigration history. Um, if you're an H-1B worker who's, who's got a resume on any of these electronic devices that's got experience that can be seen as uh, inaccurate, 
uh, exaggerated or inconsistent with what what was in your H-1B petition, um, they can the CBP officers can regard this as fraud and uh, deny your admission. And as Aaron mentioned, they could even potentially uh, do an expedited removal, which is a deportation. And they can make a formal finding of fraud or misrepresentation, which is potentially a lifetime bar um, if you're not able to challenge it or, or to obtain a waiver of that later on. And in a related, uh, what's related to this is what I would call our, our perceived inconsistencies, um, where, US, where CBP um, hones in on one particular detail on something that they find on one of these electronic devices and use this as a, as a way to find fraud when what they're looking at might actually be, be they might actually be making an, a, a conclusion that's incorrect. Um, one thing we see um, frequently is where IT consultants include a client's name and location on their resume um, because they're trying to highlight the types of companies and, and industries that they've, they've gained experience in. Um, and a lot of times people will put on their resume U.S. companies, and they'll put the U.S. company's headquarter address. Now, they did not work at the U.S. company's headquarter act address. They worked remotely from another country, um, which is perfectly, nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly legal. And they certainly had the experience, but it's just a, it, it's the way they, they prepared the resume where they listed um, the U.S. address and the U.S. company and didn't clarify that this work was done remotely. CBP will frequently consider that to be fraud. And no matter how much the person tries to explain that, no, this wasn't fraud, I actually did work for this company. I worked remotely from my, from my home country. Um, CBP a lot of times is not willing to listen to this, um, and they regard this as a fraudulent resume. When, in fact, in, if, you, if you look at resumes from countries other than the U.S., that's actually a pretty common practice. Um, there's nothing fraudulent about it. The person is, is trying to describe what industries they've worked in and what type of experience they have with, with various companies. Um, but CBP regards this as fraud. One thing to, I guess, one takeaway here, when you're, when you're preparing a resume, uh, probably should follow the U.S. standards, which are you don't list, if you're working remotely for a company, you should make that clear on the resume. I think a lot of people could save themselves a lot of problems just by doing that, frankly. Yeah, sort of follow the U.S. format for a resume where you, where you make it clear that you're working remotely for the company. You can still list the companies that you've worked for and explain the experience mm -hmm. you have with them. But you should make it clear on the resume that this is remote experience, that you are not situated in the U.S. while you are performing these duties. And that's, that's a frequent, frequent problem that we see. And it would seem, just based on the fact that it's, if that is the norm and if there was absolutely no intention to defraud or misrepresent in any fashion, that this is something that either when the individual then is sent back after the expedited removal slash deportation with a potential, well, with at least a five-year bar, and if not a potential lifetime bar to re-enter the U.S., that uh, if they use the company lawyer or multi law firm, we do so many of these that it would seem that we could explain this to the U.S. consular official because then if they look at it, understand it, and it's been explained to them and they agree with it, so that they can, and we can go back even to that particular CBP officer or the supervisor or the port director and say, I don't know if this is a training issue or some misunderstanding, but this is very common in certain countries and cultures to do this. So jumping to sure, the next I'm topic, just, which is, yeah, sure, go ahead, I'm, Aaron. I just want to jump in real quickly because it's very important that people know their rights here. 
So even if they're going to do, they give you two choices sometimes. The choice is between a removal if, if they feel strong or they allow you to withdraw. Obviously, a withdrawal is better, though nobody likes to say I'm voluntarily withdrawing something when, you're being, when the alternative is being thrown out. But it mm -hmm. is something to consider because a withdrawal means that there's no finding against you of removability, so there's no bar, uh, which is a fairly big deal. Uh, so we've seen situations where what they do is they'll go through a Q&A question and answer and they'll type it and they'll ask you to sign it. Even though it's a tense situation, make a point of reading the Q&A. If you disagree with something in the Q&A, speak up. Because if you don't and you sign it, afterwards it becomes difficult to unravel that particular uh, piece that's in there, especially if they say, did we offer you water? Did we give you a chance to go to the bathroom? Did we offer you an opportunity to contact your personal consulate so we've made you comfortable? You're not feeling like you're in duress. Sign here. And then when you sign it, now you own it to a certain extent. And the other thing is just to keep in mind that you're entitled to a copy of the documents. So that if they say, oh, you've signed it, okay, now you can leave, and they don't give you a copy of the documents, remember that from a lawyer's perspective who's trying to undo the damage, the first thing we have to do is understand what the case is. And without the Q&A, that becomes extremely challenging. So you're entitled to politely, respectfully, but firmly say, I really need those documents. My understanding is I'm entitled to the Q&A to have it to understand what's going on. Um, one other point that I want to make and then I'll hand off is just that remember if there's a Q&A and there's something that the officer embellished or added or expanded upon that's inconsistent with facts, then it's not enough for you to say it or to tell us about it or, to, or even to tell you anybody or even a consular officer about it. Provide evidence, get documentation, get proof, because one key thing is if you can show multiple inconsistencies in the Q&A, it helps to overturn a decision that the officer made to say, these mistakes are there in this area. There's very likely that there were other mistakes, including the basis for why the person removed or the person requested the withdrawal and so on and so forth, which makes it easier at the consulate either to get a waiver or to overcome certain predispositions to allow you to get the visa again and to re-enter back into the U.S. So getting that Q&A is critical. Uh, and these are just things that you should bear in mind or you should share with your employees if, God forbid, they find themselves in that type of situation. Yeah, and sometimes we've been told that the officer, the CBP, refused or says no or just ignores them or goes away from there. Get it, we can try to get it under the FOIA Freedom of Information Act request, but it takes up so much time, effort, and energy. So Aaron's point is absolutely on target that if you can just get a copy because they forget or they're busy or whatever, then make sure you get it because that's the way that you're going to overcome it with CBP itself. Go back to the supervisor, try to clean up and remove that notation of fraud or go to the consulate and explain what might have occurred and why there was a misunderstanding in the example, the way Chris Drynan explained it, etc. So continuing the theme of fraud misrepresentation, I'm sure many of you are aware of this already, that for the past two years in the fall of 2019, we at the Murthy Law Firm started to see quite a few cases of H-1B visa holders who were denied entry into the United States. And, uh, and from time to time, they were actually de uh, expedited subject to expedited removal or deportation from U.S. Po airports, land ports, uh, et cetera, uh, as a result of having listed certain companies as being their employer during the F-1 optional practical training period or OPT period. 
And uh, many of you are aware of these companies. Maybe they were apparently two related Delaware companies. These denials were based on the fact that the consular officer um, believed that these OPT employers um, were basically had supported thousands and thousands of OPT applications and applicants with no apparent real physical work in those locations. So clearly not a good place to be in and use, and they are using that to prevent these employees from either entering the country, uh, sending them back mostly on expedited removal based on fraud, or even more commonly, we are seeing that the U.S. Department of State is uh, actually making the visa void. It's called prudential revocation. They're revoking the visa. And before they used to send you a notification or a letter saying we're revoking the visa, go to the consulate next time. But with these employers, they didn't even bother to tell these students. So only when they come back, sometimes two, three, four, five years later, and even a couple of times having entered before, they're then being sent back, being told you have this fraud F1 OPT employer from five years ago or three years ago or five years ago or whatever. And so you can't re-enter the U.S. because they've caught up with it and now tied up most of these employees based on that information. So, Aaron, I'm going to have you explain some of a little more details about what's been going on uh, and how this worked. Sure. So apparently what's going on is these companies would offer OPT employment and an employment letter to students who had completed their degrees and were seeking OPT employers and were concerned because they didn't have the employment and their, un their time that they were that, that they were permitted to be without employment on OPT was taking away. These companies, they would charge a fee before the letter was provided, uh, allegedly for training and promising uh, and promised referrals to client companies after the training was completed. But I think in reality, there was little or no training that was provided and any interviews that were scheduled with prospective clients appeared to be totally fake. Uh, there were apparently no real job offers uh, to be able to provide for these individuals. Thousands of students have fallen for these schemes, and because employment information is collected in the CVS database, it's very easy for the Department of Homeland Security to flag anyone who was duped by these companies just by virtue okay. of the name of the Yeah, go ahead. My name, by virtue of their by name. By the name of the company, by virtue of the name of the company, and the timing that's involved, that's all. Um, the Department of Homeland Security regards this OPT employment as being fraudulent. Uh, essentially, their position is um, that these letter, these employment letters that people obtained from these companies were fraudulent documents. They were submitted to the to the uh, to the DSOs at at the schools, just as a, as a way to avoid the unemployment limits for OPT for people who couldn't find who couldn't find other jobs. Essentially, they were trying. Essentially, their position is these, these people were trying to maintain their their immigration status. Through a, through a fraudulent means, um, and it, we don't see. And in reality, from uh, from I personally have talked to a lot of these people. Uh, a lot of these people thought that this, these were legitimate companies and these were legitimate job offers. Um, they might not have thought these were the best best jobs in the world. They might not have really been the type of job they were looking for. But they thought they were legitimate legitimate jobs that they would be provided training, and then they would be referred out to clients. Um, and they saw it as a way, yes, to maintain their status, um, but nothing wrong with that, and also as a way to gain experience. Um, but all of this is entirely reasonable, and, and from what I've seen, the majority of these people thought that these were legitimate companies. In some cases, these, these people were actually contacted by these, by these companies, not, not vice versa. 
Um, unfortunately, DHS has not been very sympathetic on this thus far. And anyone involved with any of these companies will likely have some difficulty obtaining a visa, uh, potentially entering the U.S., or if you're already here, you may get a, have problems doing a filing for an extension of status or a change of status. Um, we've already seen USCIS requests for evidence asking about this employment, sometimes coming right out and asking about it, or sometimes doing it in a more uh, sort of a sneakier manner and just asking for, for what seems to be very generic information about prior, prior employment during the OPT period. Um, now, one thing that's important here, I've also talked to lots of people who have this employment in their background who have not yet have any, had anything happen to them. And, 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 and I've been asked, am I safe now because nothing has happened to me thus far? No, because this apparently only came to the attention of the U.S. government, as, as Sheila discussed earlier, sometime in the fall of 2019. Um, is when the U.S. government started unraveling these, the, the, this scheme. So you might have been here for a while. You might have, have had employment history with these companies had, and had nothing bad happen to you thus far, but your next extension, your next change of status, your next visa application, or next time you try to, try to be admitted to the U.S., this could absolutely come up because USCIS, DHS absolutely has a, has a list of everyone who put these companies in their, in their CVIS database. So they know they they know this. Um, so anyone who has this employment in their background should be prepared to, for something something to happen related to that experience. Makes perfect sense. Thank you for that update, Chris. Uh, Chris and Aaron. I mean, so what we've been seeing is Chris correctly pointed out both the CBP at the port of entry sending people back, the U.S. consulates refusing, and USCIS issuing RFPs. Now, in some cases, when it was a very short period. We can truly show somebody was a victim, as Chris said, they didn't contact the employer, but the employer contacted them, et cetera. We have tried to show that there was no material misrepresentation, was immaterial, it was less than the four months of uh, unemployment allowed, and it was truly, you know, misunderstanding, confusion, but there's no guarantee it will work. But we've seen in some uh, H-1 extensions, it has worked with us at the multi-law firm, but certainly it's something like Chris and Aaron both pointed out that you cannot take for granted, that we cannot assume that everything is fine just because you haven't been caught and some people who even worked four, five, six years ago uh, that have not yet been pulled over at the airport, there's a risk if they travel and come back because they're, it may automatically be triggered under their name. So I know we try to be very mindful of the time. We try to have these sessions within 30 and 45 minutes, and I see we're just about at the 45-minute mark. I know we had a couple more things to add updates about what's going on abroad in India with the consulates, about you know rescheduling a person with a 221G, who this is very recent that just happened. The Multi Immigration Services Private Limited, MultiIndia.com, told us about what's happening that you can actually book a new appointment without having to pay the visa fees all over again. But once you fix a date, it's very difficult to change it. Uh, unless you change it and again go back to them and again have to get call them to get the slot reopened for you. Plus, there's some type of automatic COVID-19 extensions in six months uh, where the officer can choose, even if it, uh, the requirements are that your um, time frame to apply is over, that they can actually continue to give you six-month extensions because of COVID-19 uh, and choose to kind of stretch the rules a little bit. So as, we, as you can understand from this discussion, this is an extremely important topic. I know it's not as directly related to each one of you as 
maybe employers alone, but this relates, relates to your employees and their families. It relates to you traveling abroad yourself as a U.S. citizen, permanent resident, or as a foreign national. And we certainly hope that we have been able to guide you. And as I said earlier, Muthi Law Firm has a lot of experience in dealing with all of these issues with CBP, with U.S. Consular Post Abroad, and with USCIS. Hopefully, you will never have to deal with it. But if you do, we, are, we would be happy to try to help you uh, solve this problem and try to deal with a respectable, a respective agency. And again, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, on behalf of Chris Drynan, our senior attorney, and every single one of our team members at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today, this afternoon. Stay safe. Happy spring, everybody. And hopefully we'll all be safe and can travel, but be careful of all these issues we talked about. Have a great afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.